every single army officer and senior NCO, everyone, every single one of them is an expert at two things. They're an expert at leadership and they're an expert at physical training. And neither one of those things is true. The people who claim to be experts on leadership or physical training, most of the time have never read either one of the doctrinal manuals. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Drew and Alex here. This week, we are adding we're adding stars to the Mops and Mo's galaxy. Where, where before there was only one star, we now have added three. Our total is up to four. Alex, who do we have on today? Drew, we got a, a long bio coming up, so I'm going to need people to strap in. I, I kind of imagine it gets hard for people to put together a resume when they've done this much stuff. Uh, you've You've probably seen our next guest on CNN talking about the war in Ukraine, and hopefully you've seen his TED Talk titled Obesity is a National Security Issue. Lieutenant General Retired Hurtling is a 1975 West Point graduate. He also has his master's degree in kinesiology from Indiana University School of Public Health, where he now serves on the Dean's Advisory Board. He earned a Doctor of Business Administration from the Crummer School of Business at Rollins College. In his army career, he was a tanker and a cavalryman. He spent 37 years in uniform and over three years in combat during his career. In Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, he was a cavalry squadron operations officer where he participated in the Battle of Medina Ridge. Uh, if you're in the army and not familiar with that battle, it's worth looking up. Uh, he was wounded during that. He was the assistant division commander of the 1st Armored Division in Baghdad in 2003 to 2004. And then he later commanded that same division, uh, the 30,000 strong U.S. and multinational task force Iron in northern Iraq from 2007 to 2009 during the surge. On 9-11, he was serving in the Pentagon as the J-7 Chief of War Plans, and he has served or commanded in every level from platoon to field army. For our purposes here, though, and this actually wasn't even mentioned in the CNN bio that I pulled most of that from, it is also important to note that he taught in the Department of Physical Education at West Point and that he was TRADOC's first Deputy Commanding General for Initial Military Training. In that capacity, he led significant change in several areas, including integrating new training methods into basic combat training, advanced individual training, and the basic officer leadership course. His team revised the Army's warrior tasks and battle drills and developed further training in rifle marksmanship, combatives, values instruction, first aid, and cultural training. They implemented the Soldier Athlete Initiative, which brought about innovative changes in physical readiness training and the introduction of athletic trainers and physical therapists to training units, also integrating performance nutrition into Army dining facilities. He even tried to change the PT test, but he was not quite successful. We talk about that a little bit in this episode. It took a few more years before the Army was fully ready for a change like that. Uh, and then to wrap up his career... His final assignment was as the commanding general for U.S. Army Europe and 7th Army, and he retired in January 2013. Since then, Hurtling has become an advisor on medical global strategy and physician leadership. He has developed a successful healthcare leadership course that he teaches at several organizations. In 2013, he was appointed as one of the members of the President's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition, 
and he serves as a senior advisor to Mission Readiness, a nonprofit bipartisan organization of retired military leaders who call for investment in America's youth. And he also serves as an advisory member to Operation Gratitude, a California-based organization which supports service members, first responders, and healthcare providers. As I said up front, he's a national security and military analyst for CNN and a public speaker on leadership, strategy, physical fitness, eliminating obesity, and American youth. So yeah, I, I think if you're still with us at this point, needless to say, General Hurtling has done a lot. But having said all of that, one of the key reasons we had him on is that while a major in the 1980s, Major Mark Hurtling wrote a piece entitled Physical Training for the Modern Battlefield, Are We Tough Enough? And we will include a link to this in the show notes, but it's a very interesting take on the state of the sort of physical culture of the American military, essentially during the Cold War, and and comparing that to perceptions around what we believed was the case for the, I guess at the time, the Soviets. And he sort of, he, he took that, that writing, and I think that that formed sort of the backbone of a lot of the things that he implemented or tried to implement as he rose through the ranks of the American military. So as we mentioned at the beginning of this, as a three-star, you are privy to rarefied air in terms of policymaking, decision-making, et cetera. And one of the reasons we wanted to have him on is because as our longtime listeners will be well aware, both Alex and I are on a vendetta to figure out why the military is the way it is when it comes to human performance. And one of the things we talked to General Hurtling about is that if change can't be made or, if, or, or if, it, if it is difficult to make change at the level at which you were at, which is the three-star level, where does where does change happen? And he has some interesting takes on that. Needless to say, this is the first time we have had to try and work around CNN's schedule when scheduling a guest, uh, and it makes for a very interesting conversation. You guys are going to like this one. Some really cool insights. This is a guy who has been directly and in a leadership capacity involved in the relationship between health, fitness, nutrition, and national security across now five decades of like significant professional engagement, publishing stuff, talking about stuff, leading efforts, making change, um, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and now the 2020s. That's an impressive amount of skin in the game, impressively consistent effort working on these issues. Um, yeah, hundred percent. If you haven't, if you haven't watched this Ted talk, you absolutely need to um, show notes. a little bit of it in this episode, but you will find that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Enjoy. So 1987, which Alex and I both realized was older than the two of us. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> what, what did the, uh, what did the physical training space of the army look like back then? What what made you feel like you needed to write that? Well, in '87, um, I was at at Sam's. It was a it was a monograph. It was my you know the Sam's course is separated in between a tactical uh, first half a year. It used to be uh, first half of the year is tactical, second half of the year is operational, and so you had to write two monographs uh, for the course. And I had just come out of West Point. Uh, let's go back a couple of more years to 1983. I was told by the Army that I was going uh, to be sent to grad school and then teach it in the PE department at West Point, a very cerebral job, actually. You know, So I went off to get a master's uh, at Indiana University in exercise physiology. 
taught at West Point for a couple of years. And as I taught and as I learned uh, in an advanced course, I realized that uh, we were focusing an awful lot on testing uh, and not a whole lot on doing. Uh, and in fact, the three event PT test, which we had at the time, push-ups, sit-ups, and two-mile run, based on my study in, in the physiology course, did not test the kinds of things that we would need in combat. And uh, so we were spending an awful lot of time doing push-ups and sit-ups and running two miles when none of those things related to what we did uh, as, a, as an army. Uh, and I read, and this is going to seem counterintuitive at the time, but I read some documentation at SAMS about how this, the Soviet army uh, would train their soldiers. And I would later actually go to Russia and see how they trained and how they conducted physical training. And it was fascinating from the standpoint of they looked like they were really trying to train their force to be very good at each one of their military occupational specialties. Now that's a long story, uh, but I wanna put it in context because the Soviet army of the day probably was a whole lot different than the one we're seeing on the battlefield today in Ukraine. Uh, they were actually closer to being 10 feet tall uh, than what we think they are today. They were tough. Uh, when I saw them training, uh, in the early days when it was there was still a cold war going on, it looked like they were really focused on beating us and being tougher than us. And I just thought, you know, when you see a bunch of guys at the time just putting on PT shorts and running two miles, and oh, by the way, there was a Marine Commandant. Oh, what the heck? He kind of, I'm trying drawing a blank on his name. I think it was PX Kelly. Uh, but I'm not sure. I may have cited him in my 1987 monograph, but he made a statement to the Marine Corps saying, hey, I would much rather you guys be doing really tough things than running around in silk green shorts uh, at six o'clock in the morning. And it, it was just a common, in my view, it was a common sense approach to preparing for war fighting. And being a tanker, what I also saw going from being a tank company as a young captain and then going off to teach at West Point, uh, I knew the shape of our army in that time and it was not very good. So I wrote this first semester monograph just to kind of throw some ideas out about how we may want to address training for combat as opposed to just doing PT. Now at the time it was just a it, truthfully, Drew, it was a thought piece. It mm -hmm. was just something to in, uh, instigate a little bit of discussion. So for the next couple of years, when I went back as a major into the force and then a lieutenant colonel as a squadron commander down at Fort Knox, what I tried to do is use master fitness trainers to the best of their ability to really show a different view of conducting physical training as opposed to just physical fitness. And I don't know, it, it, it seemed to work pretty well when I was a major in a CAV squadron. And then later on, when I was a Lieutenant Colonel, I forced, uh, having a PE background, I forced my master trainers, my master fitness trainers to get involved at the company level 
or the, the troop level to get their troop commanders to do things differently as opposed to just doing the same set of daily dozens as we used to call it and then going on a run. Anyway, that's how this all started. Fast forward, and I know this is probably where you want to get to, uh, about 20 years from then, uh, I was coming out of combat in 20, 2008, and General Dempsey had just been named as the TRADOC commander. And you, you two probably don't know the relationship between me and General Dempsey, but when, when we were both at, we were both at West Point teaching together, uh, and we were living in a triplex next door to each other, as <laughs> happens. So that's kind of where we met each other. And we would talk about uh, back as we'd mow the grass on a Saturday, drink a beer, and then talk about how screwed up the Army was and how we were going to fix it someday. Uh, and then a couple of years later, we found ourselves in positions where we could be fixing it. So he was the acting CENTCOM commander, because the CENTCOM commander had been relieved by the president as a three-star. And I was a two-star division commander in Iraq. And he came over to visit me in Mosul. And he said, hey, Mark, look, um, we did a market walk in Mosul. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm, I've just been told I'm going to be the TRADOC commander. And I'm trying to set up uh, TRADOC to be the way it is. You're coming out of division command. You've kind of spent your couple of years as a two-star. I want to see if I can get you promoted and snag you to come to TRADOC. At the time, I thought he was going to say, take Fort Leavenworth as a three-star. But he said, I want to institute something new called IMT. Now I don't even remember what it stood for. Initial military training. I can help. That's where I work. Yeah, that's where that's where Alex works. He's Initial right military training. Now I, I was confused because it's now called CIM, CIMT, and I don't know what the C stands for. I guess it's Center for Center. You got yeah, it. Center for Initial Military Training. So I became the first IMT guy, and in my rounds to the various organizations, uh, this is the long story. And and tell me if you want me to stop because no, I'm sure going. I'm boring you guys right now. This is perfect. I, I go to Fort Jackson and I go to Victory University and they tell me what they're doing. And oh, and, and oh, I'm sorry, I'll go back a second. So Dempsey says to me, I've done my initial travel around TRADOC. He says, and we've got some real challenges. And he says, I don't know exactly what they are, but I want you to fix them. I mean, that was command <laughs> guidance. He didn't say, hey, go fix basic training. He didn't say change the POI. He didn't say anything else. He just said, Take a look around and see what you think is happening because we've been in uh, combat for the last 10 years or so, seven years. And um, he says, I know we've got some polishing to do. So you take charge and polish IMT and pull them all together. No pressure. So I talked to drill sergeants. I talked to the different centers of excellence. I went around to different places. And while I was at Jackson, I ran into an old friend of mine a guy named Frank Palkoska, who in your readings, you've probably run across too. And Frank and I were both in the phys ed department at West Point uh, together. Well, he got out as a major and went uh, straight line into just doing nothing but physical training stuff for the army. And he became, as I recall, the commandant of the physical fitness school of teaching master fitness trainers. 
So he was there and a couple other people were there and they all pulled me together, the researchers, and said, here's what we're seeing in the force today. And he, they kind of showed me how many people were failing the 111 test in basic training, what we were seeing in terms of obese and overweight soldiers. We had created something that I now know we've recreated called the preliminary basic training to get people ready to go through it. And we were taking about 500 people a month into that to trying to get them up to the standard of, of being physically fit enough to go through basic training. And it just shocked me uh, because I had been in the operational force and didn't see what was coming through uh, in the institutional force for new recruits. And by the way, I found out later on that West Point and ROTC were having the same problems. Mm -hmm. So that's when we started looking at the fueling the soldier initiative and the soldier as an athlete initiative and the different stools of the program to try and incorporate something where we could get brand new soldiers up to the level of what we call the tactical athlete at the time. That was kind of a phrase that we coined. We later found out that special the special ops guys were doing sort of the same thing, but with different names. But we wanted to imply, apply it to the entire force. Mm -hmm. So that in in a very short period is the history of my time connected with uh, physical training. At the end of my two-year command of IMT, we had developed and then almost had blessed a new physical fitness test, uh, physical readiness test, and a combat readiness test. They were both blessed off all the way up the chain of command and then some people started moving around in the senior levels and we were told wave off, we're, we're gonna relook this. And about that time I left IMT to go over to um, Europe. Dempsey left TRADOC to go to be the chief and then the chairman. And what all the work we had done over a couple of years to try and get what I think you're interested in or at least one part of what you're interested in is the combat readiness test and the uh, physical readiness trust test instituted kind of just died on the vine for the next mm -hmm. six or seven years. So I will stop there. That's, <laughs> that's a summary of my story over about three decades of soldiering and working with H2F. Well, there's a lot of rabbit holes we could go down there. I will say this episode will come out, I think, roughly like six weeks after we did our, our Chip East episode talking about the history of Army Fitness, and, and you did get some shout outs in there. Uh, he did that little last chapter as part of it. But one thing that stood hey, out I, there. If I can comment on Chip East, <laughs> I, was, I was in Europe. I, I didn't know Chip. I mean, I'd, I think I met him once. He wasn't part of the the fitness regime or the readiness regime, as we call it. But he called me and said, hey, I'm working with TRADOC and they've just they're trying to reestablish some things you guys did. Can you tell us what happened? So that's how we got to know each other. And one of the things I well, there were quite a few things I told Chip, which we can talk about in a second. And I'm sure he got a lot of pushback on some of the things I suggested he do. But he also did a great job in some other areas, too. Oh, Absolutely. 
the the challenge you brought up there, which I think is absolutely still a challenge today, and I'm I'm gonna go all the way back to your 1987 paper, and you talk about how the doctrine at the time, it was then 21-20, the 1985 version, it said the PT test will not form the foundation for unit or individual fitness programs. And that is still not just in the doctrine, but it's in the policy today. But that doesn't seem, people don't seem to hear that. That message doesn't seem to get across. And you noted that in 1987, and we noticed that now today. And because I was thinking about it, I pulled up the dashboard to look at our last 10 podcast episodes. And I think we've done a ton of interesting ones, but by far the most downloaded is when we used like a clickbait title of how to train for the ACFT. (laughs) All people seem to care about whether they're soldiers or commanders is preparing for the test. And the people who design the test don't design it to be the foundation of a fitness program. They design it to be a spot check of the fitness program. So this has clearly been being observed by the people who work on these problems for decades now. Do you see any path to an army where people understand that the test should not be the whole focus of the training program? I don't want to be negative and immediately say no. (laughs) Uh, I don't see a path. But there's a couple of problems which I think... um, if you study the history of this and what we're trying to do, there's a couple of associated problems. Uh, First of all, the first problem is, as you guys know, is if you're a commander out there, if you're a company commander or a platoon leader, you're gonna be judged by the scores of things you do, whether Mm -hmm. it's the rifle marksmanship or your supply accountability or your table eight tank ranges or whatever. And one of the biggest things that we test because we have to is allegedly the physical readiness or physical fitness of our soldiers. And that's the thing that's most tested. Mm-hmm. And it's put on our efficiency reports, both officer and NCO, I think, at least it used to be when I was still in. So it's a, it's a glaring stoplight of how good you are as a leader reflected in how good your soldiers are in many areas, most importantly, physical fitness. Secondly, we are a physical, we are, you know, the army soldiering is a physical sport. I mean, it requires a level of fitness and readiness that not all organizations require. So it becomes important. The third thing, and this is something I told Chip with, kind of a tongue in cheek, I said, hey, Chip, one of the things I've learned now that I'm more senior is every single army officer and senior NCO, everyone, every single one of them is an expert at two things. They're an expert at leadership and they're an expert at physical training. And neither one of those things is true. (laughs) The people who claim to be experts on leadership or physical training most of the time have never read either one of the doctrinal manuals. Neither one of them have advanced training on either leadership or fitness. It's what they've learned from other people. So in order to break this cycle of, of, of saying, you know, how, how do we change from going away from a test-based, tra- test-based training program into a results-based and an action-based training program, you're gonna have to break cultural norms between the old guys and the young guys. 
So those are the challenges we face in getting to the point where people see, hey, I've got to really train people for the physical demands of combat as opposed to just scoring X amount of points on five different events. The tests are made, I think the new test is made and the old test that we recommend, the old two tests that we recommended back, back in 2011 were based on our best assessment of what muscles and, uh, and anatomical systems, biological systems, the body uses to counter fear, counter fatigue, and prepare for really tough work. You can train for those things. But as soon as you start measuring them, um, it, it, it becomes detrimental to really training them. The other thing, truthfully, I'd say is our last two wars have not really tested the things that we say we need in soldiers because we've been on fobs and we eat a lot of really bad food and we don't get a whole lot of sleep. So we are not that tactical athlete that we say we want to be, that that super athlete uh, geared toward combat. Uh, and we have, unfortunately, a lot of overweight, out of shape people in our ranks. And it's getting worse. It's worse than when I was in IMT. Well, that's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because we I mean, we, this is something that we have talked about on numerous episodes, just this idea of like. People have been shouting about these metrics getting worse for decades and they continue to trend down. And so my question for you is, I mean, as a, as a retired three-star general, you're in like rarefied air when it comes to just perspective on the force, ability to make change. If it doesn't happen at that level, like if you're still being hamstrung at that level to create the types of changes that you know need to happen, where, where does it come from? Like how do, how do we, you know, move the needle in the right direction in terms of some of these metrics that just keep getting worse. Um, couple things on that. First of all, this, this isn't an army issue. This is a society issue. In fact, last Friday, I mean, I, I ought to send this to you. I was teaching a course. I teach a physician leadership course to a bunch mm -hmm. of doctors and I walked into the hospital where the course is taught. And as I walked in, uh, there were two wheelchairs right next to each other. And one of them was a normal size wheelchair. And the other one was twice the size of it. And I talked to one of the, the people there, that, the transporters, as they call them, the guys that you know wheel people around the hospital. And he was telling me that they had just bought these brand new ones from the striker company because the old ones were breaking under the weight of people that were coming into the hospital. They had to do the same thing for their gurneys in the emergency department, uh, where they have to now carry weight upwards of 600 pounds on gurneys because patients are so big. What we're seeing is your generation, not mine, uh, between the generation between yours and mine, I guess, um, are, are coming into hospital with, with hospitals with what the medical profession called massive comorbidities. Mm -hmm. So you don't come into an emergency room with one thing wrong with you. You come into an emergency with four things wrong with you. And all of them are causing debilitation 
with our population. And that's advancing. The army is a reflection of the population. Um, this was one of the things when I was at IMT, and I'm sure you guys saw my TED talk. The TED talk that I gave was sort of a watered down version of a briefing I gave to Michelle Obama. She came down to Fort Jackson and we escorted around her around for a while because <laughs> um, after we introduced the PT test to a bunch of reporters at Fort Jackson, the new physical readiness test, one of them, a guy by the name of Jim Dow, wrote an article for the New York Times about the Army changing its PT test. But what he put in the headline was Army, I think the headline was something like, Army moves from uh, calisthenics to yoga and Pilates. <laughs> and it was damning. I mean, and it was a headline on the front page of the New York Times. Oh, man. And man, you can imagine as a brand new three star down at Fort at Fort Monroe, I was getting all kinds of calls from the old graybeard saying, what the hell are you doing there, Hurtling? What, what, why are you doing Pilates and yoga? And, and I wasn't, but that's what they said in the article. Well, we kind of were, I guess, Pilates to a degree. So Mrs. Obama said she wanted to come down to see what we were doing. Uh, and this was early in President Obama's uh, term. She spent the day with a bunch of soldiers. Do you guys know this? Do you know about this, this <laughs> history? Uh -huh. She came down to Jackson for an entire day and we showed her what we were seeing in terms of research from Victory University about new recruits and how bad they were. And then we took her around, we showed her what we were doing. We were showing, we showed her how we were trying to get uh, young soldiers fit. And at the end of an entire day, she was literally there about nine hours. Um, at the end of the day, she pulled me aside and she said, you got to help me. <laughs> she said, you've got to help me get the rest of the country on board with this. And I said, I, by that time, I was feeling kind of comfortable with her. And I said, I'm sorry, ma'am. I just got new assignment to go over and take command of Europe. I said, we've solved the problem for 1% of the nation with the U.S. Army. You and your husband have the other 99% <laughs> to work at. I was kidding around with her and she laughed and <laughs> She kind of hit me on the arm and, and she said, well, we'll come back and get you later when you're out of the army. And she did. And that's how I got on the president's council for fitness. That's um, awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's the rest of that story. But it was kind of interesting because I think she noticed the problem that we were having was not one of just people being out of shape but how it was affecting. And part of the reason we did this was because it was affecting how much money the army was spending on repairing injured people that were out of shape and treating guys who were breaking guys and guys and gals who were breaking, having stress fractures, couldn't run a mile, you know, all this other stuff. She saw it as a healthcare issue and treating patients later on in their life. We saw it as we got to get guys and gals through 10 weeks of basic training without destroying them. The reason I went down that rabbit hole, uh, because I think this is answers your question, this isn't something the army can change by itself. Mm -hmm. We can we can manipulate it a little bit and turn the rheostat up and down, but this really is a societal issue. And there's a lot of people working it in the society, I found out during my time as the on the president's council, but there's not a lot of people taking it seriously.
So before I ask the next question, I did I did do some Google in here when you mentioned the article after you met with Michelle Obama. And there's some incredible head. I had never seen any of these before. These are from like 2010, 2011 timeframe. Pilates. But one of them is U.S. Army turns to yoga for making soldiers combat ready. That's the one. <laughs> one of them is Army develops new ab busting basic training. Oh, God. This one says bayonets out, ab blasters in. Right. Well, and that was that was interesting. I, I'll share that with you because I got a lot of heat for that one. And I was talking <laughs> to a reporter, kind of like I'm talking to you guys, which I now know is a big mistake. Don't talk to reporters this way. Great. But, but he, one of the reporters, we were talking about the entire uh, uh, program of instruction, of basic training. And he said, well, what other things have you changed? I said, well, one of the things we changed is we eliminated bayonet training. And, oh no! <laughs> and, and, and he was like, "What?" And I said, "Well, you know, why would we do bayonet training and basic training if mm -hmm. no unit in the army does it? And the last time we did a bayonet charge in the army was like in 1864." And I said, "So we eliminate we eliminated 18 hours of bayonet training. Now we replaced it with combatives and assault training, but we took out the bayonet. You know, stabbing the." you know, the dummy, like they see in stripes, you know, with mm -hmm. John Candy and all that. So that was his clickbait, you oh, know? No. I mean, that, this is what you get into when you're trying to make change. You got a lot of people using you for clickbait and making fun of you. It's it's part of the game, I guess. I promise um, we'll make no commentary on bayonets and yoga in our- uh... <laughs> well, but, but look at it this way too. At the time we had five basic training sites and one of those basic training sites was an OSIT site at Fort Benning, Georgia. And what made at the time, what did make what made Fort Benning different from all the rest? Well, it was their patch that had a bayonet on it. So we were screwed at Fort Benning. It was a you know, and those are the kind of things you got to be careful of when you're trying to make change. So I'll I'll ask a potentially hard question here. Um, you you were on the President's Council. You've worked with Mission Readiness, Council for a Strong America, things like that. And the, the question I was going to ask was, can the military solve these problems in initial entry training? And you already said the answer is no. We know the answer is no. There's only so much difference you can make in a few weeks. Well, wait, can I stop you there, though? Sure. Well, go ahead. And ask your question, and I'll, I'll stop you. My, my question is, if we, if we realize that we have to get upstream of that problem, and make more of a difference in public school physical education and things like that before people arrive at that initial entry training. Do you think, whether it's in the era you were on the council or today, do you think the president's council has been successful in its mission over the last few decades? Like, is there more that they could be doing? Like, what is what is the space there for an organization like that to lead some of this change? Well, I'll answer that question very quickly. Yes, it can be if it has the right people on it. And if they're if they're given direction, and this is going to come back to another answer, if they're given direction by the commander in chief, in this case, the commander in chief, and this is going to be a recurring theme of what I talked to you about is the commander's role. Uh, we had in uh, Obama a commander in chief that was young, vibrant, energetic, who also had just a energized spouse in Michelle Obama. So whereas it was called the president's council, we, during my four years on the council, we saw the, pre is that right, four years? Yeah, four years on the council. We saw the president three times. I saw Michelle Obama about, well, dozens of times. I mean, she was at every event. She was the face of it. Mm -hmm. 
the White House, certainly as, as in any command uh, representation, can bring a lot of WASTA to any kind of program if they're focused on it. Uh, and that's the challenge we have in the Army. Let, let me get to that more in just a second and first say, you asked the question, Alex, about can you do this in basic training? If you have a commander like I was with a background in fitness and saw priorities and was tagged by my commander in terms of the TRADOC commander to do certain things and, and gave me free reign with kind of a command environment, yeah, you can get it done. And I think we did in IMT during that period of time because we had a focus on changing the culture of training, regular training and fitness training and values training. Those were the three buckets we had, values, fitness, and soldier skills, the warrior task and drills. I will briefly shout out to go with that. Just to, to back up what you're saying to a certain degree, and I've, I've had to cite this before, and I'll, I can't pull it up right now. I'm not fast enough, but uh, there, there are plenty of people who are critical of PRT. And one of the things I've pointed out numerous times is that while there's lots of questions about PRT's relevance for the operational force, in, in the generating force, in that initial entry training environment, it legitimately did cut injuries in initial entry training dramatically. Not just injuries, it, it cut injuries. It, it significantly approved aerobic and anaerobic strength, uh, more so than the old calisthenics and the rifle drills and all that other stuff. And we had a much fitter and more, I mean, we can show the results of that research between the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things. And the reason I think what you're getting at is the operational force uh, doesn't like PRT is the same reason why everyone's a expert on physical fitness because they don't read the manual and they don't know how to do it. Here's, here's a vignette I'll, I'll share with you. In 2011, when all those articles that you were just reading the clickbait headlines on came out, you can imagine I took a lot of heat. Before I left IMT and went to, to Europe, I was asked to present at the AUSA conference what we were doing. And I was already starting to get a lot of, of heat from the operational force saying, what the hell is going on in basic training? In fact, I wrote an article about what is going, what's going on in basic training for Army Magazine. And we outlined everything. You can click on that sometime too. But one of the things I did... Uh, because they were saying that this Pilates, yoga, ab busters was all basic, was all contributing to basic training going soft. What I did is took a GoPro camera with a couple of drill sergeants and a sergeant major, and we went around to three different sites in basic training and filmed what we were doing in morning PT. Then I took the same GoPro camera and went to... Fort Hood, Texas, and Fort Bragg, South Carolina, North Carolina, excuse me. Where is it? South Carolina, North Carolina? Fort <laughs> Liberty now. Fort I, Liberty, yeah. It's right down the road Liberty, from me, North Carolina. North Carolina, Fort Liberty, North Carolina. And we filmed, without their knowing it, operational units doing physical training in the morning. And, you know, what we filmed, not because I wanted to taint the clip, 
was a whole lot of in the operational force, what one drill sergeant termed grab ass and volleyball. <laughs> you know, it was 15 minutes of stretching, you know, a couple of calisthenics and then a 18 mile run or whatever it was of misery and agony. And then it was more stretching. So it was exactly what we were trying to counter in the operational force. In the, in the institutional force, we could control what was going on. We controlled the training sessions, we controlled the dining facilities, we controlled the sleep cycles, and there was no interference. To add, to, to add more to that vignette, when I went to Europe, I got a call right before I, I arrived in Heidelberg as the commander later on, and it was the G4. And he said, hey, sir, he says, I'm just probing before you get over here. Are you going to want to do some of this soldier athlete stuff over here in Europe? Because I got to get ready for it in terms of the mess halls and the and what we're doing. And me and the G3, me and the user of G3 want to know how you're going to handle this stuff. So I said, well, I said it was, you know, we put it together for the operation, for the institutional force, but let's give it a try in the operational force. And he goes, well, you know, there's going to be some major problems. So we went go for green in Europe. We, but when you go for green in the mess hall, you're still, you're now competing instead of with other mess halls in the, in the basic training or advanced training, you're now competing with schnitzel and beer downtown or McDonald's or Burger King on the post. So it from a from a health food perspective, it's a different environment. But we still instituted it. I had a, a young woman who I'm sure you've run into uh, by the name, a name of Nicole. But her husband was a lieutenant colonel and she was getting her master's in, in nutrition in Europe. She was a spouse and she was working with the DOD schools and she came to me and she said, hey, you did this fueling the, the uh, soldier in basic training. We want to do fueling the future in DOD schools. So she took a couple of pilot studies in Heidelberg and I think in Freeburg and introduced to DOD schools what we were doing in the Army in terms of healthy eating. So she gets the proper shout out since I, since I know both Leth. Nicole Leth is with the... Uh the Belvoir Army Wellness Center doing doing all that kind of stuff. So Nicole is doing fantastic things. I've talked to her a bunch of times. And then her husband, Al Leth, is at the War College, also involved in fitness. Yeah. But he was a DPE guy too. Yeah. Nicole went on to try and do uh, an H2F for the joint force, as I recall. And... She, they called me and asked me what my biggest problem was. And this, I'm now circling back to what we started to talk about. I said, they had an Air Force colonel in charge, I think in the Pentagon, and they had a small team. And I said, hey, look, you're not going to go anywhere trying to make all these changes because you're a staff guy <laughs> in the Pentagon. No one is going to listen to you until you get commanders in charge and commanders involved and train commanders it's it's going to fall in it. And she, oh, no, no, we've got it. And, and this Air Force Lieutenant Colonel is, oh, I got it under control and everything's great. And I got all kinds of support. And I said, okay, all right, dude, knock yourself out. 
And I, I think it pretty, pretty well failed. And that's a horrible thing to say, but they didn't get anywhere with it, I don't think, uh, from a joint perspective. I don't know if it's the same initiative as that. There's, there's lots of talk around what's called Total Force Fitness, which is the DOD's overall it. concept. And it, it has floated, it. and I, I don't know how many TFF people listen to this, but I certainly work with a few of them. It exists. It is there. There is a document. There's a, a J Rockham and a Doty and a capability, like all the all the documents you need to generate requirements and things like that. That all exists, but it doesn't really have a home. It doesn't. It doesn't have a clear right. owner. It has changed who the proponent right. is a lot, and it's there's a framework, but there's no action necessarily. It's there's some great work that's been put onto it. I'm I'm sorry I denigrated it. There's been some great work. But it, the military is run by commanders. And until you get a commander doing something and putting emphasis behind it, and that was what was interesting at, at, at TRADOC when I got there. Uh, when, when I went down to Fort Jackson and, and ran into Frank Palakoska and a couple of the other folks down there, they, I said, if you've seen this stuff now for five or six years going on, how come you guys haven't done anything about it? And the answer I got was because we've never had a support. Now we've got a former DPE guy. You can help us. So, okay, I got it. I understand where you're going with this. And that's kind of the lesson learned. So it's a two-pronged issue. First of all, you need a commander to be in charge. But as I told you before, all commanders are experts already. So you've got to change their view of the world and show them really what the importance of this stuff is. How do you do that? How did you have success doing that? Or did you? You got to have a commander in charge, period. I mean, I, as the commander of IMT, working with five different training, uh, basic training bases and 27 different AIT bases, I was able to say, this is what you guys are going to do. And your mess halls are going to institute fueling the soldier. And over a two-year period, it happened, some to great degree, some to lesser degree, but it's it's holding people accountable. And, and you know, it sounds like I'm saying I got it all right, Drew. Mm -hmm. I didn't. There, it, it was a spectrum of good to bad, but at least they were all doing it because it was part of what I asked them to Did do. Did you, and I mean, you kind of just answered this now, but I'm curious to elaborate on it. Again, being at your level, did you have or did you experience difficulty translating that message down to where you think that it matters the most? Kind of the level of the the troops or the boots on the ground, so to speak. Just seeing what you saw, knowing what you know, and saying this is the direction that we're going to go in. Okay, go and do it. And then that message has to translate across, I would imagine, hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And like you mentioned, you land on this spectrum of like these guys are doing it really well. These guys are doing it really poorly. How do you, how do you course correct or how do you, how do you make sure that your message gets there and everyone's moving in the right direction? Well, I mean, there's millions and this gets away from the physical training piece into the mm -hmm. leadership piece. And you have to showcase the ones that are doing it right. And you have to, you know, reward them and, and tell other people, Hey, these guys, you know, the first, the first basic training dining facility we had that transitioned to green, um, uh, go for green was um, one at, at the field artillery school. 
And so we had at IMT, I had a young intern as my public affairs woman. And she was just, she, she was a, she was in her twenties, but she was just a, a pit bull. Uh, her name was Kelly Schlosser. Uh, she was General Schlosser's daughter and she was in the army public affairs program. And, and I kind of gave her free reign and I said, advertise this stuff. So you got to message it. You got to reward people. You got to showcase it. You got to go down, pat people on the back, give them letters, coins, and all that other crap that we do in order to push the positive. And, you know, you try and bring the guys that are on the other end of the spectrum up to that level. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. So I'll bring it back to fitness for you. And we talk about optimum, optimal fitness on here quite a bit. And I think then with what we're seeing in the military with the embedded human performance teams and this kind of shift away from what we'll sort of call industrial fitness with just the masses moving through the motions. Now it's more of an individualized approach. How do you think coming from a CIMT or IMT background, thinking about retention, recruiting, fitness testing, all of those things at scale, how do you balance that with what we know now physiologically in terms of optimizing the individual? I'll use the term tactical athlete here, but just the, I guess the competing demands of those two things from a logistical and administrative perspective. When you take a look at the cross section of what you're talking about, one of the things that makes the army so cool is doing things with your mm -hmm. buddies and competing with each other and forming that bond and sweating and you know having a good time and joking around afterwards and singing cadences and all those other kind of things and who's getting better who's getting worse when you relegate it and i'm not by the way i'm not saying this mm -hmm. is bad but when you relegate excuse me when you relegate all that to a coach you've then kind of entered into the into the realm of the PE teacher. Um, and, and that that's, I understand why the army is looking to do coaches and hire a lot of people to do this, but you know, a lot of people back in the day didn't like going to PE classes because you had the guy with the whistle in front or the woman with the whistle in front and she was a taskmaster and she was an expert and you know, she didn't, he or she didn't do anything wrong. They were a physical specimen and all that. And so it's the proverbial sage on the mm -hmm. stage. And that counters the psychological dynamic of how do you get individual soldiers to improve together and to help one another, as opposed to depending on a coach to do that for them. I don't know how to explain that, Drew, but it seems to me that especially with a generation that is more individualistic anyway because of devices, mm -hmm. that we're, we're playing into that. We're having experts coach and teach them. And my first question, and I've never been to any of these facilities, so I can't answer the question. Where are the sergeants? Where are the young corporals? Are they just part of the class that the fitness expert is leading or are they contributing in ways uh, to building their own, their squad, their tank crew, their team? I don't know. I, I don't know. Cause I'm dated. I'm 10 years. Well, out it's, of I mean, it's a fascinating 
perspective, I think, that you bring to the conversation because that's something that we have discussed with commanders at all different levels. This idea of historically, PT is like an integral part of NCO development, leadership development, leading your squad, leading your team. However, comma, that's led to considerable numbers of injury rates, you know, people viewing physical training as punishment, just this kind of warped perspective, because I'm with you. I think that there's this romantic ideal of squad-based PT doing all the things, you know, building camaraderie. The argument to be made for the, for the coaches is, Hey, we can now take what we see at professional sport, collegiate sports, special operations, programming coming from years of experience, master's degrees, blah, 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 blah. There's goodness in that too. And I think the challenge that we have seen and that we've talked about again, multiple times is how do you balance that with the success rate of group kind of PT done well, because I think it can be done well to your point. You could have corporal sergeants leading it and doing it well, but we've all seen situations where that Sergeant flips out a deck of cards and you're doing, you know, push-ups, burpees, lunges, cause why not? And so I think the investment yeah. in subject matter experts, but again, I, there's not a question there, more of a commentary of like, it, it does create an interesting conversation. It does. And I think you've pointed to something here. And again, I'm, I'm uninformed in this area. So don't take, maybe this is happening, but I'm wondering if the, the fitness experts that the army is hiring at all of these facilities, do they have, when, when a platoon comes in, for example, is it a platoon that comes in or is it individuals? And if it is a platoon that comes in, does that fitness expert that's leading this from a professional standpoint with the knowledge base, does he or she grab the, the sergeants, the key four squad leaders and say, hey, this is what we're going to do today. Here's how you're going to help. And who are the weak and, and strong people on your team? Where do we, you know, but that's going in, that's really digging into mm-hmm. the weeds. It is the it is truly a coach's approach as opposed to a trainer's a coach uh, approach. So excuse me. I've got a few things mm-hmm. to say here that I think will be valuable. Um, first, for some background, because I know we didn't talk much before bringing you on for the episode, but but part of the nature of like Drew and I talking this stuff. Drew comes from an entirely strength and conditioning background. He's never been in the military. I come from having been in the military, spent a few years teaching at the fitness school, got a few layers of those experiences in there. So we we bring those two perspectives a little bit that gets exactly what you're talking about. But I think there's there's kind of a spectrum here and there's a happy medium that's ideal, right? At one end of the spectrum is coaches are leading the training and NCOs are not involved in the leadership of it. And that is clearly not the answer. And at the other end of the spectrum is NCOs are disregarding the advice of coaches and just doing their own thing. And that's not the answer either. And I think there's a, this is the constant conversation of what tactical human performance is, what embedded strength coaches in units do. This is the constant challenge of how we figure that out culturally. But I think there's a happy medium where coaches are training NCOs to lead better PT and then NCOs are up there delivering it. And that's a constant process because I know this, this varied over the years, but during the time when I was teaching master fitness trainer, it was a two week course and you can't make somebody an expert in fitness in two weeks. And right. what we've seen that's really exciting is that these, these teams embedded with the units can identify the NCOs that have the aptitude for it, provide them a week or two of dedicated instruction where they're in the classroom wearing all this stuff. And then 
monitor them for weeks and months and years as they see how they're doing and learn from on the job training and continue to get better at it. So embedding this capability versus having it at a schoolhouse that they travel to for a couple of weeks presents some really, really high end potential in terms of how we can improve the way NCOs deliver training. Well, Alex, I, I tell you, going again, going back into history, that was when the MFP, MFP course was first established. That was mm -hmm. the concept. Bring them to the schoolhouse at Victory University, give them the, the degree of master fitness trainer, send them back and let them do all these things. And the effort is to try and get one of these MFPs at each battalion and then at each company and then at each platoon or whatever. But it got watered down somehow. And, and I don't know how it got watered down, but it did. And the other thing that happened was in the MFT, because I know what it was like at the beginning and I know what it evolved to, it became from the beginning, it was here's the practical way to train your soldiers to be better. It evolved to a classroom discussion on kinesiology. Mm -hmm. And they, they, you know, it, 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 there was too much of a focus on book learning and paperwork as opposed to how do we, how do we incorporate this pragmatically? I agree with that completely. Shortly before I got the curriculum changed, like as I got there, but I know shortly before I got there, there was a whole to do about like teaching all these NCOs the Krebs cycle. And <laughs> I, I cannot think yeah. of a situation where the thing that would determine success would be your knowledge of the Krebs cycle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty important. <laughs> do, do you think, I mean, one of the, one of the kind of, threads that Alex and I are pursuing right now is discussion with, with British military folks, because they have the physical fitness, like I'm going to butcher this, but essentially it's an MOS for those guys. It's a full-time right. job. And right. one of the things that I have wondered about always has been, by the way, exactly. And it's, I, I mean, by all measures that I can see it, it does well, but like MFT is an additional duty. And I think to your point about things getting watered down, I mean, I see this happen all the time. Like yeah, they have the thing. They went and did the stuff and got the, you know, cert or whatever. But because there's a million other things going on, that individual can't focus as much effort as they need to on training in such a way that reduces injury rates, increases readiness, right. blah, 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 blah. So I wonder if that's part of the issue too, is that it's just not taken as seriously as you would want it to be, given that we preach people first all the time. But there are there are two other things that play a role in this too, and and again, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but who who do you send to the master fitness trainer course? This it, is exactly the question. It's yeah. the jock. It's yep. it's the person that's already doing it. I mean, when you're a company commander, you say, "Yeah, I'm going to send Morrow to the MFT because he's really interested. He's a gym rat. He's there all the time." Those guys already know it. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're they're now getting the advanced learning, if you will. But truthfully, a lot of those folks that are the jocks and the gym rats are are going to come back with a whole lot of personal bias too. So maybe you should send to the MFT course somebody that doesn't want to go to it. I don't know. I'm I'm spitballing here. But the other thing is, once you get them back, uh, are they? Is their voice heard by the mm -hmm. commander? And my experience is not much. Nope. Not much. I mean, they are not integrated into the training meetings and they're not integrated into the, what can we do to improve our, the, all their, you know, the, the battalion commander saying, again, 
how come my fitness scores aren't good? Master fitness trainer. What are you doing <laughs> down there? You know, it's like, it, it, it is a true cultural change. Well, you mentioned, and I'm, I'm flipping through back to your 87 paper. I'm, I'm not going to get to the quote in time. I don't think, but, oh, wait, I did find it. And I, I understand that army war fighting has changed since then, but you mentioned that a review of five divisional level yearly training guidance memoranda shows no emphasis on contingency related physical training. And I mean, we can extrapolate that to present day to your point, like the physical training plan is not briefed as part of the broader kind of battle rhythm of any organization that I've seen. And I think you touched on this with some of the Soviet stuff and kind of some of your vision of where maybe this could go, where it becomes enmeshed into that operational rhythm and it becomes a priority versus just saying it's a priority and blocking off an hour and a half a day to do whatever you want, basically. Well, and, and that may be a good point too with the master fitness trainers and you're involving them. I mean, I don't know how many young sergeants who you're going to send to the MFT course are going to have a knowledge of how to create a, a metal-driven training plan, you know, but that's what they should be doing. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're if you're part of the, I don't know, 10th Mountain Division, well, it did kind of go that way for some of the infantry units where they said, hey, some of our things that we have to do are related toward long ruck, ruck marches. And the fad of the ruck march came to be. And that became, hey, instead of doing the sit-ups, push-ups, and, you know, like you said, the card deck of burpees, <laughs> we're going to, the entire morning PT session is going to be a, a, a ruck march show up in gear. So those are the kind of things that some units, the more advanced units will take a step toward, but um, I don't know. It, it, there's a lot of folks that get left behind too. Hmm. So before I hit you with these questions, we are at the hour mark and I want to respect your time. Are you able to hang out for a few more minutes or do we need to wrap this thing up real you, quick? I can give you 10 more minutes. Okay. So go ahead. Yeah. So the, the first one of these somewhat rapid fire questions will be a little bit longer, but 10 years ago in your Ted talk, you described obesity as, and I'm using your words here, emerging threat that would have national security consequences in what you estimated as 20 to 30 years. We're, we're now 10 years into that 20 to 30, and we are struggling to man the all volunteer force. Do you think your, your timeline was on or do you think this is getting worse faster than you might've expected even? It's, a, it's getting worse faster. And it's because of the uh, increase during that TED talk, I talked about the amount of screen time that our soldiers were spending on TV and, and, and new computers. This was 2010, remember. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing more and more of that today. In fact, there's a great book called Generation Z that, that my wife is reading right now, talking about the deleterious effects of, of screen time uh, to our nation's youth, not, not only in, from a physical perspective, but also from an emotional, social perspective. So yeah, I think we're getting there faster. And you can see it in pictures. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I hate to say this, I shouldn't judge people, but I see photos of, of some of my, co my former colleagues who are now general officers and colonels with their units. And it's like, man, I don't know if it's the new uniform, but there's some sloppy looking guys in there. Mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it's worse than it used to be. Now I'm sounding like an old guy. It's worse than it used to be. Now, I don't know if that's because they're putting on much more muscle mass, but I don't think so. Uh, they're bigger. And, and I think that 
is going to cause problems in the long term with with health related issues. But we I also see it in society working in healthcare. Yeah. It's horrible. So I'll leave that one where it is. And this next one takes a little bit of setup. I don't know if you read it was then Major Matt Clark. I don't know if he's a lieutenant colonel now or not, but he wrote a two-part series in the Modern Warfare Institute about the Army has a physical fitness problem. And one of the things he pointed out is he he drew up a generic training cycle for a brigade combat team and like how much time is spent in the field and days where you have PT and days where you don't have PT and things like that. And he used it to articulate his point that we, we build up physical fitness pretty well in the early stages of a training cycle because we have more time in garrison and things like that when you're focused on individual tasks. And then we we sacrifice it as we go into collective training and miss more and more physical training. And the end result is that we deploy soldiers at their lowest state of physical readiness over the course of the training cycle. Correct. And as I read your work and I read anybody who's looking at like a historical perspective on soldier performance on the battlefield, it's understood that their physical readiness is foundational to their performance in combat. And we seem to sacrifice physical readiness for the sake of collective training requirements over a standard training cycle. I'm just wondering what your thoughts on that are, because these are competing demands. We have to train collective tasks, but it comes at a price. It's a great point, but I don't know how to get around it. I mean, when you when you do a month long deployment or rotation at the NTC, you don't, you know, as the cog out there, I never saw guys doing PT at the NTC. When you're a tanker and you know you can do all the tanker drills in the motor pool during PT segments when you're in garrison, but when you deploy to a gunnery cycle, which is normally about six weeks long, you go into a detraining effect. Uh, and no one's going to want to sweat it out when they're in the field, uh, you know, and say, okay, time for a PT session, guys, let's get back in shape. But there is that detraining effect uh, whenever you go into one of those cycles. I don't know how to get around that. I, I will briefly shout out the first master fitness trainer I ever interacted with. And he's the reason I wanted to be a master fitness trainer and go to the schoolhouse and stuff like that. He Sergeant Andrew Merritt. I don't honestly know if he's still on active duty. I got to look him up on global. He was absolutely fantastic. And we had him routinely leading field PT for everybody who worked at the talk in the infantry battalion I was in. And I vividly remember a bunch of PT sessions in the Ruba at NTC doing like 400s and things like that. So it is wow. possible. It does happen. Well, that, that's good news. That, But that's the kind of guy you look up for, up to, yeah. you know, and say, hey, that's that's what we want. Well, I know you mentioned you've got to bounce. So we wanted to first thank you for your time. This has been fantastic. And uh, is there, I mean, I know you mentioned your TED Talk, obviously your paper, just in terms of like the best place people can find out more about your stance on a lot of these things. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, He's got a book. We'll link that too in the show notes. Yeah, we'll, we'll link your book yeah. in the show notes too. But you know, here's here's what I'll tell you that, that – um, there's been there has been a lot a lot of people, uh, especially those in the media, who have come back to me since I retired and wanted me to comment on the new physical readiness test. And I, I'm not going to go there. You know, I, I mean, it, it's just one of those kind of things that, you know, guys like Chippies put that together. You know, I I have I applaud them for what they tried to do. I, I'm not sure everything was good in terms of, especially in terms of the amount of equipment that's being used, because that was one of the things I was told when I went around 
to talk to old graybeard generals when I was still in the force saying, how do we do a new PT test? And some of the old guys who had done the three event test admitted to me, boy, we really screwed up. We really screwed this up. And I said, well, what would you have done different? And they said, well, we would have used the old five event test that they did at, P at West Point because that actually is a test of the kinds of things you need in combat. I don't know if you guys know what the five event test is, but it's horizontal ladder. I, I won't go into it, mm -hmm. but, you know, to second, you know, I've second guessed myself on, on the old, on what we recommended. I'm sure there's a lot of people throwing stones at the test that's out there right now, especially those in the, uh, in the reserve component. It is, I think a good test, but it violates the one rule of you can't have a lot of equipment. You mm -hmm. got to be able to do it anywhere. And yeah. Alex, like you just said, if you, you had this Sergeant at the Ruba at the NTC who was doing PT in the motor pool, I bet he didn't bring a whole lot of equipment with him. One of the best sessions we ever did. He told us to grab a rock from a nearby pile of rocks. And that was the extent of it. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cool. Huh? And the other thing, when, when I first deployed to Iraq, the first, my first deployment in OIF one, by the time we settled down and started creating fobs, guys were building their own PT stuff, you know, benches out of uh, tin cans with cement in them and stuff. And it wasn't until <laughs> we got to the point where we were importing fancy and uh, expensive gym equipment that we started to see less and less people working out. <laughs> it's oh, a man. direct correlation, you know? That's awesome. Well, yeah. thank you again for your time. We'll let you get out of here. You guys, uh, we appreciate thank it. You. Yeah. Thanks for what you're doing. I hope I didn't tell too many long stories and bore you to death. No, that was perfect. That's we could have gotten much longer. Don't worry. <laughs> That's a disease of old generals. We'll I see love you. it. Okay. See Thanks, sir. Take Bye. care. Hey, Alex, let's cover our ass real quick. Oh, great idea, Drew. All right, guys. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter in, mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can, at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in-depth and kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.